And here were some of the definitions that were found. Thanksgiving definition. The act of giving thanks. Another definition under that heading. A prayer expressing gratitude. And this one's probably my favorite. A public acknowledgement or celebration of divine goodness. We have a lot to be thankful for. This morning, that's what I want to speak about. And in God's providence and sovereignty, that's exactly um, where we pick up from our previous series. Where we've been going through Ephesians. And last week, as you recall, we made it through a whole whopping two verses. And those were tacked on to the end of a bunch of history, right? I know I hated plowing through, but uh, with the clock broke, I just have no concept of what time it is. Does somebody have a watch I could borrow? Some, you got one? Right? Well, he knows how easy that was. It's not fast either. It's not fast, okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, uh, anybody have a wallet? That was pretty easy. <laughs> so anyways, okay, we'll see if I can't stay on track here then this morning. Uh, if you want to, take your Bibles, uh, and even if you don't want to, turn them there anyway. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, you remember last week, really the sermon was mostly about background. It was giving us the history of what's going on uh, to uh, to the uh, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, and who Paul is writing. And he is um, writing to a culture and a time period there that was definitely in the heart of wickedness. It was... Uh, the metropolitan area, if you will. All of the boats came into harbor and all of the things that, that uh, would come into dock there, they were uh, filtered through out the Ephes- Ephesus area there, the city of Ephesians, and they would uh, then go into the eastern or the western part of the world. So this was sort of a hub where everyone, where the, where the west uh, meets east. And of course their big thing was their uh, pagan worship, the big temple um, that was there in the city of Ephesus was uh, the, uh, in, in honor of the goddess Diana or Artemis. And so Paul's writing to these people that are there in the midst of that. And so it was important that we get a background picture last week of what's going on and who he's writing to. Now you remember I left you with some closing thoughts because we talked about who Paul was when he was Saul, how he became a believer on the road to Damascus, and how he was now Paul, the apostle, called by God according to his will. And we also looked at who we are. And I left you with the challenge of, you're a saint. That's what the scripture calls us. When we are born-again believers, we're placed into Christ, we are referred to as saints. That's how God sees us, and that's how we should be. And I challenge you with who will you become? What will, in essence, be your legacy? Well, today, it's only appropriate that the week of Thanksgiving, we talk about praise and glory. And I hope that this message won't just hit on Sunday. I hope it will stay with us throughout this week, throughout our lives until we see Him face to face. There's some key phrases that I want to lay out for us as we look into today's study. And so I want you to kind of make mental note of these, and even if you'd like, go through your Bible, maybe even circle or underline some of these key phrases that we're going to find in today's study. You'll notice uh, that in Him, in Christ... In just these 11 verses, or, boy, my math's bad, isn't it? Verse 3 through 14. Uh, You do the math. Uh, Anyways, there's 10 times you'll find in Him or in Christ. You'll also see, according to His, it'll say according to His grace, 
or it'll say according to his good pleasure or according to his purpose or according to his counsel. And you'll see this five times. Now, again, key phrases in this short little span that you'll find in the text. You'll also see to the praise of His glory three times. Now, it's important for us to understand this. This is probably the the passage we're looking at this morning is probably uh, the single uh, longest run-on sentence in all all of the New Testament. It's one deep breath and he goes. Okay? And this is what we find in this one flowing thought, this one sentence that Paul is sharing to the Ephesians. In him, according to his grace, according to his good pleasure, according to his purpose, according to his counsel, to the praise of his glory... And it's that, uh, to the praise of His glory, that will be our natural outline uh, as we look at the text this morning. Uh, Read with me, if you would, in verses 3 through 14. And I did just do the math now that I have the numbers there. I was correct. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. Verse 10, That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13 says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The first point that I want us to look at this morning is praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Father. And you'll find this in verses uh, 3 through 6. And you'll notice there in the text, if you'll look with me, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly he's referencing the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Saint, I want to stop right here. I left you with this thought last week. And I cannot drive this home enough. I cannot preach this enough. As believers, the Father, He has blessed us. If you are in Christ, the battle is over. He has won the victory. Why do we choose to live defeated lives? Why do you let the sin so easily beset you? Why is it that we carry the baggage of the past, the guilt, the shame? Let it go. If you're in Christ, He nailed it to a cross. Satan is the one who condemns. The Father, He's blessed us with every, not some, 
every spiritual blessing. Isn't that what Paul said? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, key phrase, in Christ. Now the question is, are you abiding in Christ? Is Christ abiding in you? He blessed us. Well, what else did the Father do? Well, according to this text, verse 4, it says that He also chose us. Hmm. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Now, this is where we get into some deep water. All right? You know, I I referenced uh, the other week about going to the uh, beach with uh, a hyper-Calvinist, a Calvinist, an Arminian, and a Biblicist. And I'm surprised none of you asked who the Biblicist was. But anyways, Um, here's the thing. Great theologians have divided and have debated and discussed this. And it was so funny because the other week when I was studying this, I was reading this, and this thought hit me. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. The light kind of just went off, and I said, and I come running into the kitchen, and, and I'm kind of being facetious, but I was sort of like, honey, you're not going to believe this. I have solved the age-old discussion and debate between the hardcore electionists and the Arminian It's right here. I have the answer. God has revealed it to me. Here's the thing. Too many people get bogged down in Ephesians. And the hardcore electionists will drive this home. That God elected some to be saved. Now, what's the problem with this thought in its extreme form? If he lines up ten people, and this is the way, and I know it's a little unfairly presented this way, but this is, again, to the extreme where it goes. Some people will say, God lined up ten people. And he said, before the foundation of the world, you, 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 and you, I choose. You're going to heaven. You, 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 and you, I didn't choose, so you're going to hell. Now, I have a real tough time with that concept. Because I believe it puts an unfair characterization upon God. It ascribes to Him an attribute that I don't find when I study the attributes of God. But there's a mystery here. Because the Bible does say He elected. And it does say He chose. It does say He predestined. It does say He foreordained. So, for the brave of heart and the strong of mind, if you want to dig deep into this, I'm telling you, it's a forever, never-ending discussion and debate that will almost drive you insane because our fallen minds can't fully comprehend what is at the core of this teaching. But let me share some thoughts that hopefully we can wrap our mind around. Okay? First off, teach the whole of Scripture. God does say that He chose some. He does say that He elected. He does say He foreordained. It's in the text. But He also says, I command all men everywhere to repent. He says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. He does desire that all men would repent. He does say whosoever. Now, again, if you ever get into a good deep discussion with a hardcore hyper-Calvinist electionist, they'll have you an answer. They have an answer for everything you bring to them. But what dawns on me the other day when I'm studying this is we're missing something. Who's Paul writing to? 
Well, look at the text. Fast forward into chapter 2 and go on down to verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, now what's therefore, therefore? He's summing up everything that's kind of come on previously to this point. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, that is very important. You see, Paul is writing predominantly to the Gentile believers. The problem in Coloss, uh, when in the Colossians, they had also sent Epaphras to him. He was telling them what's going on. He's, remember, Paul's in prison right now. Okay, When he writes these letters, he's in prison. He's in house arrest. And so the news comes to him of the struggles going on. What were some of the struggles? Well, the Jews, the chosen, the Jewish people, the chosen ones were really having a difficult time accepting the Gentiles into their promises, into their their faith, so to speak. But remember, Christ is the vine, and the Gentiles were grafted in. As we'll read through our text in just a little while, his desire was to make one. So Paul's writing to the Gentiles, predominantly. He says it there in the text. And what is he wanting these Gentiles to know? Well, now let's go back and re-read the text. It makes sense when we understand context. If he's writing predominantly to these Gentiles because they're being attacked for just being Gentiles, how can these Gentiles be allowed into the promises? Well, notice what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Look, don't let anybody tell you just because you're a Gentile, you're not blessed with the same spiritual blessings and promises that were given to Abraham and and those followers. Because it's in Christ, just as He chose us. All right? The, The Israelites aren't the only chosen. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You know who He chose before the foundation of the world? He chose the Gentiles to be grafted into the vine. That's what was predestined before the foundation of the world. Oh, wait a minute. Where does God operate? Follow me. I refer to myself as... I was, past tense, I am, present tense, I will be. We only have a glimpse, and the glimpse fleets into the history. You understand where I'm going? But how does God refer to Himself? I am, I am, I am. Jesus said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It would have been amazing enough if he would have said before Abraham was, I was. That would have been mind-boggling enough because that's you know, a lot of years gone between. But no, he said before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus, God does not see us as we see ourselves. We see ourselves confound within time. Paul is writing as moved by the Holy Spirit to give us language and understanding that we can somewhat comprehend. So to say you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, we can kind of somewhat understand that. But you've got to realize, before the foundation of the world, I am. Throughout time, I am. Throughout 
current, presently speaking, Jesus is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He already knows the beginning to the end within the confounds of time. So in the moment that I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and God calling my heart to repentance and I chose to surrender my life in that moment, didn't escape God. He knew because He sees always constant in the present. I know this is kind of hard to... You understand, you see what I'm saying? This is, it'll drive you crazy if you're not careful. But here's the point of the context of the text. He's not necessarily singling out individual. See, this is what the hardcore lectionist does in Romans when he says, Esau, I've hated. Jacob, I've loved. Throughout Scripture, consistently, he will use a name of a person to describe people groups. Look at the full context. Continue on through Romans 12. Keep going. He's dealing clearly with a people group. Once again, the Gentiles. Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he caught a lot of flack because of it. And what a great person to choose to do it. A Pharisee. A man who studied. He was under Gamil. He was under the best Jewish leader. Now to take him and send him to the people that he despised the most. The dogs. Keep in context. Paul is trying to clear up some controversy in Ephesus. So he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. What did he choose us to do? Well, he says there in the text, He chose us to be holy and blameless. Okay? That's what, according to the text, he chose us to do. Don't take my word for it. Read your Bible. It says it plain and simple. But what's happened is you've been taught probably preconceived ideas and so we pour it into the context when it's not really in the context. Read the whole scripture. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where it is. It's in Christ. Okay? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, what else did God bless us with? Well, He also blessed us. He predestined us. There's another one of those tough theological words. The Father predestined us. Having predestined us, what did He predestine us to, according to the Scriptures? Adoption. You see what I'm saying? He predestined the Gentiles to be adopted into the family of God, the grafted-in branch. Jesus Himself said, I have other sheep. What other sheep is He referencing? Somebody tell me. Gentiles. So, He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, that's how we get in the ark, folks. It's only through Jesus Christ. You want to get in the boat and avoid the judgment? It's in Christ. So, it says that we should be holy without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. It was His good will. It was His pleasure. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I know a hardcore electionist will, you know, again, take that and, and put it under the microscope and break down and do this and that. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of times, if you ever get in a conversation with a hyper-Calvinist, it reminds me of uh, Bill Clinton. What is, is? I mean, you know, you just... Anyways. So, what else does the text say? It also goes on to say that not only has the Father blessed us by choosing us, by predestining us, it says He has also accepted us. Notice here in the text, He says, according to the good pleasure of His will, verse 5, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted 
in the beloved. We're accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in the beloved. What, what is there here? What, what, what's, what are some key words? Well, grace. Notice the word grace. Unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to earn God's grace. Grace is a gift. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of works, so you can brag about what you did. No, this is clearly about God. It's about who He is. When we think of this discussion, and again, I know, gang, it's, it's a difficult, deep theological study. Keep it simple. Grab yourself a coin and look at one side and look at the other side. They're both clearly the coin. And I'm afraid what's happened is we have divided this teaching, biblical teaching, and we focus on one side and we got our camp that focuses on it hard and then we get our other side and it focuses on its side too hard. Can we, can we truly wrap our mind completely around? No. I stand here before you as a pastor, and as hard as I studied this text, and as deep as I dove into this scripture, and as I have in my time as a believer, will we fully understand this? No, not till glory. I love what Hank Hanegraaff says. He says, I can apprehend, but I can't comprehend. I can apprehend these truths. I get somewhat of the, I, I, the concept here. I understand this. But I cannot fully comprehend the mysteries of God. If we could, we'd be God. That's not us. That's Him. So, notice, the Father has blessed us. He's chose us. He's predestined us. He's accepted us. Notice point two. Praise and glory to the Son. Praise and glory to the Son. Look in verse 7. Through 12. Uh, praise and glory to the Son. Well, what did the Son do? Well, clearly here in the text. In Him, who's that? In Christ. In Him, the Son, we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. You see, the Son, He redeemed us. In the Son... We have redemption. Praise and glory to the Son. You see, it's through His blood, Paul is communicating to the Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Turn with me, let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Jesus Christ the Son has given us redemption. Through His blood He shed on the cross, He has purchased our pardon. We have forgiveness of sins because of what the Son did. So, praise and glory to God the Father, praise and glory to the Son. What else do we have because of the Son? Well, we not only have redemption, we also know His will. Well, let's take a look. Um, knowing His will. What does it say? All right, well, we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Again, God the Father sent the Son. The Son did the will of the Father. He um, says here in verse 8, "...which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us..." The mystery of His will. 
according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one. Who's He gathering together, people? It's not, quote-unquote, just the elect. Yes, it's the elect. But who's Paul specifically targeting in his audience? The Gentiles. He's saying, look, the Jews and the Gentiles. He purposed in himself to bring this about before the foundation of the world. He says um, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Alright, so in the Son, we know His will. We know He he purposed. Um, We know that He gathers together the the two groups, into one in Christ Jesus. Look, this was God's plan from the beginning. Turn with me. Look at this Romans passage. Maybe this will help shed some light. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's look at these verses. Uh, Chapter... 3 verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did just the elect fall short of the glory of God? No. All man has fallen short of the glory of God. Same all as he talked about previously believing. Same all as you see every time you see all. Let's continue. All of us, please. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace... How are we justified? Freely, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let me keep reading. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He's again trying to explain to these Jewish people, you're not just the chosen frozen. There's some others. Okay? He says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Look, the Jews are in because of Christ. The Gentiles are in because of Christ. Praise and glory to the Son. He redeemed us. Redemption, blood, the forgiveness of sins. We know His will. What was the mystery? This is the mystery. That the Gentiles, the church age, wasn't seen by the Old Testament saints. They knew nothing about this. This is a mystery. But the mystery has now been revealed. 
Christ has made it known. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He sent forth his apostles. He chose them to go forth to build his church. We're in a church age, a mystery. But the mystery is no longer a mystery. Paul is revealing it to us by the penning of the Holy Spirit. We know these things to be true. He purposed, he gathers together in one. Also, we have an inheritance. All right? An inheritance. Notice that um, the inheritance, he predestined. There's that word again. It says that in him, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, Again, in the Son, we know that not only did He purchase our salvation at Calvary, we've been justified before God. We've been made right before God. We're in a process now of sanctification. Okay, uh, God's working on us. We're being conformed to the image of His Son. The more that we internalize God's truth and be obedient to God's Word, we become... Um, a living, walking Bible to those around us. They read our pages every day. And God is working on us. And eventually, we'll see the end of this process at glorification. Because my understanding is I was, I am, I will be. But for God... He's always, I am. Salvation is paid in full. There's an inheritance coming to those who are willing to believe. Those who are willing to put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Those who are willing to trust the promises that have been preached and taught from the beginning into the church age. Look, Abraham was justified the same way you and I are. He believed the promises of God. And it was counted unto him as righteousness. The problem, the reason why people won't get into glory, it's not because they didn't go to church enough or do good enough things. No. The reason they won't get into glory is because they won't be righteous. And none of us would be righteous if we didn't get in Christ. To as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. When you came to that place and that point in your life, when you repented of your sin, you surrendered your life, and you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, in that moment, you were born again. Which brings me to this point. Praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Son. And praise and glory to the Holy Spirit. You want a text to show somebody the Trinity? It don't get any clearer than this, folks. It's in the text. We just went through, and, and, and again, if you're doing a little circling and highlighting, you see the Trinity is laid out clearly right here. Don't let a JW trip you up. How about this? Praise and glory to the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. It says... In Him, Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Now, what did the Holy Spirit do? He sealed us. What does this mean? Well, it's the idea of a king when he would send forth a letter to the land. He would take his signet ring and he would seal the letter. And it showed his authority. 
it, 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 it identified uh, that this is property of the king. And no one was to open it. No one was to remove that till it reached its final destination. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus said, I got to go away, but I go away, another's going to come. It's a comforter. Father's going to send him, all right? And when he comes, he'll bring to remembrance all these truths. So, the promise has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has come. And it's when you believe, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can pluck you from His hand. Don't let anybody teach that you can lose your salvation because it is not biblical. It's not biblical. Look at this text. He sealed us. Okay. It says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If God guarantees you something, don't you think He's going to follow through? People say, well, yeah, but, but pastor, you can remove yourself. Oh, so now you're stronger than God. I didn't know that. I'm glad to be informed of this information. He sealed us with the word of truth in Him, Jesus, we trusted when you heard. By the way, how did you come to saving faith? You heard. How How does a man hear? Well, unless God sends forth a preacher, right? Someone to go forth and preach the word. How does faith come? If you're saved by grace through faith, how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you heard the word of truth, he says to these Gentiles, look, you pagans there worshiping Diana, all you, you uh, folks there in the metropolitan area, um, you've burned all your books, your witchcraft, you've forsaken that, you've repented of your sin, you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You remember what happened? You heard the word of truth, you trusted in Jesus. Now he's sealed, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. When you believed... The good news of salvation, that's when the Holy Spirit of promise sealed you. Now, um, it says He guarantees us. Look at these last passages, and I'm trying to hurry through. This is my last point. Guaranteed us an inheritance. Notice in Acts. Turn with me to Acts real fast. He has guaranteed us, Acts 20, 28. Listen to this scripture. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Who's the flock? It's the church. It's the born-again believers. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Look, God's paid for it. It's paid in full. There's an inheritance. You're a purchased possession. Notice the, the um, cross-reference over to uh, Romans uh, 8. Go with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. There's a time coming. You know what your inheritance is? Your inheritance is glory. Your inheritance is a new glorified body. The Father, He's blessed us. He sent His Son into the world. And it's through Him we can be forgiven of our sins and made right with God. And in doing so, He seals us 
with the Holy Spirit of promise, guaranteeing, because He knows the beginning to the end. We just got a snapshot, there it went. Snapshot, there it went. But He's the I Am. He's the Alpha, the Omega. Give us a little idea in a, in a time understanding. We have an inheritance. He's guaranteed us. Well, what's the application? The application is this. Plain and simple. The Father has blessed us. The Son has redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us. What is Paul telling the Ephesians? He's trying to bring unity in the church. He's trying to let those Jewish folks know you're not the only chosen ones. God has another people. And that good news is passed to us, the Gentile. And in Christ, we are made one. We have a lot to be thankful for because the Father has blessed us. The Son has redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, the time that we have here in the morning is really... There's no way to do justice with the text that's before us. But Lord, I pray we back up and see the big picture here because clearly uh, this was an area where the pagan worship was rampant, um, and yet many Gentiles were coming to saving faith. They were turning from their wicked ways and they were turning to the one they were hearing about, the person, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you knew because you're all-knowing. This was your plan. This was your purpose. This was according to your will. Lord, I'm thankful that we're able to be a part of that plan. And Father, maybe there's someone here this morning. They've never turned to Christ to say, Lord, forgive me. They never called upon Christ in saving faith. I pray, Lord, this morning that your Holy Spirit would convict and would draw them to repentance. Because, Lord, just as Noah and his family got in the ark prior to the judgment, your son Christ represents an ark. And it's only in him that we can abide safely. Lord, you are our rock. You are our strong tower. You are our refuge. May we hide in you. And Lord, I am grateful that in spite of who I am, you're able and more than able to keep me secure in Christ. Lord, help us to understand this as people, as your people. Help us to realize that Christ has purchased the victory. We need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. Lord, forgive us when those times happen. May we live in victory. This week, Father, I pray that you would help us to reflect upon you to give you praise, to give you glory. You are worthy of our praises. We ask this all in the name above every name. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. It's called Thanksgiving in blessing and affliction. Most of us know the story of the first Thanksgiving. At least we know the pilgrim version. But how many of us know the Indian viewpoint? No, I'm not talking about some revisionist, politically correct version of history. I'm talking about the amazing story of the way God used an Indian named Squanto as a special instrument of His providence. 
Historical accounts of Squanto's life vary, but historians believe that around 1608, more than a decade before the pilgrims landed in the New World, a group of English traders led by a Captain Hunt sailed to what is today Plymouth, Massachusetts. When the trusting Wampanoag Indians came out to trade, Hunt took them prisoner, transported them to Spain, and sold them into slavery. But God had an amazing plan for one of the captured Indians, a boy named Squanto. Squanto was bought by a well-meaning Spanish monk who treated him well and taught him the Christian faith. Squanto eventually made his way to England and worked in the stable of a man named John Slaney. Slaney sympathized with Squanto's desire to return home and he promised to put the Indian on the first vessel bound for America. It wasn't until 1619, ten years after Squanto was first kidnapped, that a ship was found. Finally, after a decade of exile and heartbreak, Squanto was on his way home. But when he arrived in Massachusetts, more heartbreak awaited him. An epidemic had wiped out Squanto's entire village. We can only imagine what must have gone through Squanto's mind. Why had God allowed him to return home against all odds, only to find his loved ones dead? A year later, the answer came. A shipload of English families arrived and settled on the very land once occupied by Squanto's people. Squanto went to meet them, greeting the startled pilgrims in English. According to the diary of Pilgrim Governor William Bradford, Squanto became a special instrument sent of God for our good He showed us how to plant our corn, where to take fish and to procure other commodities. And that was also our our pilot to bring us to unknown places for our profit and never left us until he died. When Squanto lay dying of a a fever, Bradford wrote that their Indian friend desired the governor to pray for him, that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Squanto bequeathed his possession, his possessions to his English friends as remembrance of his love. Who but God could so miraculously weave the lives of a lonely Indian and a struggling band of Englishmen? It's hard not to make comparisons with the biblical story of Joseph, who was also sold into slavery, and whom God likewise used as an instrument for good. Squanto's life story is remarkable. And we ought to make sure our children and grandchildren learn about it. While you're enjoying turkey and pumpkin this week, share with your kids the Indian side of the Thanksgiving story. Tell them about Squanto, the special instrument sent of God who changed the course of American history. We have much to be thankful for. And to God be praise and glory.